For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following Again, sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, this making disciples to, for the glory of God. Uh, looking in detail at the multitude, which is around the throne in heaven, uh, from verse 9 on. So tonight we'll spend a little bit more time, one more um, sermon now in Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, before we move along. And uh, the title of the sermon is The Sealing of the Saints. This is dealing with the sealing of the 144,000, part 2. In the first part of this text, verses 1 through 8. So, I want to read our text together. We'll break into this section of text, see what the Lord has for us, and uh, go from there. It's been a joy to go through this book with you. And just as we go through, I want to hopefully remind us sort of where we are in the book, how the book fits together, so that we can get a handle on uh, understanding eschatology. There's just so much confusion. If you're like me, you know, we grew up with the Left Behind series and Tim LaHaye and all that kind of stuff, the dispensational premillennialism, uh, which just does not hold up uh, under the weight of Scripture uh, by any stretch. And so, but thinking differently now about Revelation can be uh, sometimes a little unsettling, and it takes a bit of time to think biblically through the book. And I'll tell you, um, Clyde and I were talking the other night about this very thing, but, <coughs> excuse me, Biblical theology, biblical theology, and a good understanding of biblical theology, types and shadows, shadow and substance, promise and fulfillment, those kinds of things, really, really helpful, <coughs> excuse me, uh, really helpful to understanding your eschatology. And we see that, um, for example, in detail right here in chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, that typology becomes really, really important, and a good foundation of biblical theology becomes really, really important to understanding these texts. So I hope you'll see that as we go. Uh, feel free to ask questions after, if you like, and uh, be happy to help where I can. All right, title of the sermon, The Sealing of the Saints. This is part two, Revelation chapter 7. I want to read verses 1 through 8 for context. Verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. This is the word of the living God, amen? Amen. Pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you for this time together we have uh, on Sunday nights to consider your word. Uh, Lord, we, we need your word uh, every opportunity that we get. Uh, we need to be under your word uh, preached. We need to be reading your word, studying your word. And when we're not under the word preached, reading or studying your word, we need to be meditating on your word, uh, hiding it in our heart that we might not sin against you, that you might grow us and mature us by your spirit. Uh, Lord, help us now as we come to Revelation chapter 7 and seek to understand um, what it is that you're communicating to us. And I, Lord, it's important for us to understand what you say, but it's important for us to understand what you mean by what you say and how these things are communicated become uh, just exceedingly important to our understanding. So help us to understand. Lord, um, give us eyes to see, as it were, ears to hear, a heart to perceive the things that you've revealed to John for the benefit of your church, for the encouragement of your church, for the encouragement of your people as we go through tribulation together as we hasten your soon return. Please help us, Lord. Encourage us tonight. Uh, glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Magnify your own goodness and grace to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Title of our sermon, The Sealing of the Saints. This is part two, Revelation chapter seven, verses one through eight. So we have entered into, now where we are in the book is in the second of seven literary cycles that comprise the book of Revelation. 
There are seven literary cycles that make up the book of Revelation. The first one that we looked at were the letters to the seven churches. Uh, With the, the last church, that cycle was concluded. And then the second literary cycle began in Revelation chapter 4 with uh, the throne room vision given to the apostle John. John, if you remember, was given a vision of a door standing open in heaven into which or through which John peers into heaven and he sees the very throne room of God in the most holy place in the, in the heavens. Uh, it was there that he sees the one who is seated upon the throne and that one des- described in absolute splendor, uh, just these glorious terms of, of beauty and holiness and those around him sit- seated on the throne worshiping. Then as we move into chapter five, there is the depiction then of him who is seated upon the throne with a scroll in his right hand and the great angel with a strong voice proclaims or asks throughout the, the vaults of the heavens who is worthy to take the scroll and to loose its seal. John begins to weep because no one is found worthy until the Lord Jesus Christ. John hears, he hears the description of this lion from the tribe of Judah. And when he turns, he sees, he beholds a lamb standing before the throne as though it had been slain. And what he sees and what he hears, two depictions of the very same person, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has prevailed. He has prevailed to take the scroll from the right hand of him who's seated on the throne. And he begins uh, to execute the decrees of God concerning the last days by taking the scroll and by loosing its seals. If we place that in time chronologically, it's at the time that the Lord Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven on the clouds and has received the kingdom. Having received the kingdom, having received all authority, all authority been being given to him on heaven, in heaven and on earth, the Lord Jesus Christ then begins to loose the scroll and to execute the judgments or to carry out the judgments that are contained within that scroll. That scroll, again, written on both sides, front and back, meaning there's nothing left out, there's nothing that can be added to it, and like Ezekiel says, that scroll we know containing lamentation and woe. These are judgments we find as we get into chapter 6 then, judgments that are poured out upon the earth. These judgments represented by four horsemen, four horsemen are summoned, and as the horsemen are summoned, the horsemen are sent forth onto the earth to pour out the judgments of God. And these judgments of God, representative judgments, as we saw, we looked back at Leviticus 26, for example, other texts, these judgments representative of God's judgments throughout uh, the history, uh, redemptive history, four representative judgments that are poured out upon the earth. And then as we get to the end of chapter 6, Chapter 6 closes with this very important question. By those, asked by those who are being judged at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of chapter 6, who is able to stand? Who is able to stand before the wrath of the Lamb? The Lord Jesus Christ returning in judgment to judge those who dwell upon the earth, who is able to stand? What we see now in this At this stage, in this second literary cycle that started in Revelation chapter 4 and now continues through um, the end of Revelation chapter 7 into Revelation chapter 8, what we see in this second literary cycle of sevens is the history, if you will, of the church age. It began with the ascension of Jesus Christ and his rule and reign from the throne next to the majesty on high executing the decrees of God written in the scroll, and now through his return and the judgment upon the earth, the judgment that falls upon the earth. What we see now coming to chapter 7, where we are tonight, again, is then an interlude. And the interlude, it's a brief pause, if you will, to consider who it is who is able to stand and how it is that they are made to stand. We're considering Those whom God has preserved, those sealed saints who are able to stand, and then again, how it is that they are able to stand, God seals them. Now first, chapter 7 gives an answer to the question, who is able to stand? In essence, it's a question that that closes our consideration of the entire period of tribulation. That culminates in the return of Jesus Christ at the end of the age to judge mankind for their sin. When the Lord returns as he has promised that he would, he returns to judge the world and to cast down the wicked. Chapter 6, verse 15, this is depicted now in verse 15. The kings of the earth, great men, rich men, commanders, mighty men, every slave, every free man, somebodies and nobodies, right? 
They hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, in the face of the Lord's return, in judgment, in the face of that wrath, the wrath of the Lamb, they plead to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, I want to show you one more time, I want to remind us, Again, at this end of the second literary cycle, here we are at the return of Jesus Christ. We all see that? Right? So again, this is not, Revelation is not a book that begins with the letters to the seven churches and then follows a chapter-by-chapter chronological order to the return of Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 20. That's not what's going on here. Again, it's a cycle of seven, seven literary cycles that are repeated. And each of them covers the beginning, if you will, the incarnation of Jesus Christ or the ascension of Jesus Christ all the way through the end of the church age to the return of Jesus Christ in judgment. And we see in each of those cycles, in many of those cycles, we see the people of God then assembled in heaven. So again, here we are at the end of chapter six at the return of Jesus Christ. Okay, we're at the return of Jesus Christ, and the question is asked, considering the great day of his wrath, who is able to stand? In consideration of God's great wrath against sin, in consideration of his righteous judgments that are being poured out upon the wicked, upon mankind, chapter 7 explains how it's possible that we see then a multitude which no man can number around the throne. How is it possible that anyone makes it? And then we see in chapter 7, a multitude which no man can number around the throne of God. All nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Who is able to stand? The people of the Lamb. They're the ones who are able to stand. Those whom he has purchased with his own blood, those who whom he has preserved to himself, that he might raise them up at the last day, not one of them lost. Okay? So first... Chapter 7 gives us the answer to the question, who is able to stand? Second, chapter 7 explains how it is that God's people are able to stand. How it is that they are preserved through the first four tribulations, those four horsemen poured out on the earth. How do God's people persevere? Do they preserve themselves? The answer is no. They don't preserve themselves. Uh, Once again, we see our gracious God at work holding us fast until the end. This is what it means, folks, when we say, um, in quoting scripture, that we are persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him, namely me, right? We, We have committed ourselves to him through faith, right? We've committed our very souls to him. We, if you're in Christ, you've put all of your eggs in that one basket, amen? And it's right that you should do so in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're persuaded that he's able to keep that which we've committed to him until that day. Why? Because he's the one who preserves us and not we ourselves, right? We're persuaded that he can do it. I have no confidence in myself to make it to tomorrow, all right? So the Lord himself seals them. The Lord himself preserves them. And think with me about how that correlates with other passages in scripture. The Lord made a promise to the church at Philadelphia in the first of seven literary cycles, those letters to the churches. If you remember this from Revelation chapter three, verse 10, he says to the church at Philadelphia, because you have kept my command to persevere, right? They need to persevere. We need to persevere. We're called to endurance. And because they've kept that command to persevere in the faith, the Lord says, I also will keep you And when we looked at that word, remember our sermon on that text, preserve you through, I will preserve you through or guard you through that hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. That time of tribulation. In other words, the sealing of the saints explains how the Lord Jesus Christ will keep his people from the hour of their trial which is meant to test the earth dwellers who have persecuted his people. The trial, the tribulation, meant to test the earth dwellers, test the wicked, to judge, pour out judgments upon the wicked. How is it that God's people are preserved through that, guarded through that? It doesn't mean, by the way, that you're going to be guarded through with no pain or that we're not going to have suffering or that it's just going to be easy, easy, you know, cheesy peasy (laughs) until the end. That's not what that means. 
But it does mean, what it does mean is that God is able to preserve us in the faith to the end, to bring us home to glory. That's what the Lord is is speaking about there. Now, we're going to see them later. So we get to Revelation chapter 9. We're going to see those protected and preserved. Look at chapter 9. Look there at verse 1. We're going to see them protected and preserved. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to to the earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. In other words, who were they to harm? Those men who don't have the seal. Who were they to refrain? Who were they restrained from harming? Those with the seal. Do you see? The Lord knows how to protect those of us who are his own, right? The Lord knows how to protect his own, to, to deliver them from judgment. They were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them. These are earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth, those who do not belong to Jesus Christ, those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, right? They don't have God's name on their forehead. They were given permission to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. We see those people of God, the people of God, protected and preserved. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. We were speaking about that this morning in Romans chapter 8. Right? God's Uh, the doctrine of God's perfect providence. God executes his decrees in his providence and he knows how to carry out all of his decrees to their accomplished end. And God certainly will do it. It's not a protection from pain, not a protection from difficulty or adversity, but rather it is a preservation in the faith, a preservation to the end that we might be saved. That should be a comfort to you and I. Right? In the same way that the, the, the Romans chapter 8 this morning, it should be a comfort to us that God is working together all things for our good. What a tremendous comfort. This should be a comfort. We have God's name, as it were, God's seal. We have his Holy Spirit. We have his spirit, and we are being preserved. God will preserve us in the faith. Nothing, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 30, 39, right? Nothing. No one and no thing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is preserving you. God will keep you. God is sovereign over your suffering such that he will see you through it. So chapter seven then is best seen as an interlude, a pause, if you will, explaining how the saints then persevere through the tribulation that we saw in chapter six, how they are preserved through the the church age, through the period of great tribulation, through these last days until we see the, the entirety of their number, as it were, before the throne in heaven. Now, the people of God are sealed. Whatever happens, God is going to keep them in the faith. So, brothers and sisters, Rejoice in his love, even when the going gets tough, even in anticipation of the going getting tough, rejoice in his love. Trust in his power, rest in his promises, cling to his word, uh, rejoice in his sovereignty, and claim these promises by faith because God's word gives them to us, amen? This sealing, this sealing takes place before the angels are given authority to harm the earth and the sea, before the four judgments of God are poured out upon the earth. The sealing takes place before those judgments are poured out. And this sealing signifies the providential protection and preservation of God as he works all things toward the full, their full and final accomplishment. The ultimate aim is seen then in two pictures of the church in Revelation chapter 7. Ultimate aim seen in these two pictures of the church. Chapter 7, as we discussed last week, gives us essentially two pictures of the same group. Namely, the church, the servants of God, 
sealed with his name upon their foreheads. We see the church on earth, verses 4 through 8, those specifically sealed for their time of tribulation upon the earth. They're pictured encamped as encamped tribes of Israel, so to speak, prepared for battle. We're going to talk about that tonight. They represent, as it were, the church in the wilderness, the church during the time of her testing, the church in tribulation. We might think of this group as the church militant. And then we see the church in heaven, verses 9 through 17, pictured as a great multitude around the throne, every nation, tribe, people, and tongue, the church in the worship of heaven, the church having endured, right? The church having overcome, given the crown of life, having been preserved by the one who promised to preserve them. And we might think of this group as the church triumphant, the church having entered her rest. All right. Both are pictures of the church from different perspectives, if you will. We'll look at that now. So tonight we pick up chapter seven with two depictions given of the church, the church in her tribulation, the church in her warfare, and the church at rest, the church having overcome and assembled in triumph before the throne. Remember, these two depictions of the church are given first through what John hears and then through what John sees. Verse 4, John hears the number of those who were sealed, and he hears a description of the Old Testament type for the church. An Old Testament symbol, if you will, the tribes of the nation of Israel. In verse 9, John then turns and he sees a great multitude in heaven, which no man can number, and the type, if you will, is seen in its anti-type. The type is seen fulfilled as fulfilled in its anti-type. Now, let's consider first what John hears in verses 4 through 8. And this will comprise most of our time together tonight, right? Let's consider first what John hears, verses 4 through 8. Verse 4. I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And then he hears 12,000 from each tribe. Remember, John is listening. John is listening, and he's hearing this described. Now, there are several very interesting questions that are raised in consideration of this list that then is given in verses 5 to 8. First is this. Who is and who isn't on the list, and why? It's an interesting list, it's, um, and it's a list that's not anywhere else in Scripture. It's unique to Revelation chapter 7. Jacob, renamed Israel, had 12 sons, if you remember, the 12 tribes of Israel. And everywhere in Scripture, this 12 is a reference to completion. Uh, we see the new heavens and the earth with 12 foundations, 12 gates, right? Everywhere 12 becomes a symbol, if you will, or signifying completion. Does that mean that the new heavens and the new earth isn't, uh, or the new Jerusalem isn't a literal city? No, it very well may be a literal city. Does it mean that because the number 12 is symbolic that it doesn't have 12 gates? No, it may very well mean that it has 12 gates. But the number 12 is important, do you see? The number 12 signifies completion. It's the same thing, we use numbers in that way, very similarly. But I, I think of the example all the time of Peter, for example, asking the Lord Jesus Christ about forgiveness. Shall I forgive my brother seven times? Right, why the number seven? Because the number seven signifies something. The Lord says no, but seven times seven. Right? He's signifying something by the numbers that are being used. Does he mean literally 490 times and not 491 times? No. Seven times seven means all the time. All the time he's to forgive him. Okay, It signifies something. The number 12 here also signifies something. It signifies completion. It signifies perfection, if you will. It signifies an entirety and being that it's 12,000, signifies a very large number. He hears 12,000 from each tribe. Now, Joseph, if you remember your Old Testament, Joseph was eventually replaced on the list of tribes by his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Joseph was given a double portion, if you will, of all the allotments that took place for the 12, okay? Joseph eventually replaced by his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Sometimes Ephraim and Manasseh are considered half tribes because the total number of tribes on the list are to be 12 tribes, 12 total rather than 13. So sometimes you'll, ref you'll hear reference made to the half tribe of Manasseh. Or 
Sometimes that issue of 12 is resolved when Joseph or Ephraim and Manasseh replace Levi because Levi wasn't given an allotment. Levi's portion was the Lord, and so Levi was often left off the list, replaced by Ephraim and Manasseh to keep the number at 12. Make sense? Following along so far? Okay. So by dropping, by dropping both Levi and Joseph from this list in Revelation chapter 7, and by adding Ephraim and Manasseh, you keep the number at 12. However, this list, Revelation chapter 7, the Lord leaves off Dan. You don't see Dan on the list. He lists Manasseh, but does not list Ephraim. And he lists both Levi and Joseph. It's a very unusual, unusual list. So there are 12 tribes. We maintain the number of 12 here, a complete list, a complete list. That number signifying a perfect list, 12,000 from each 12 of the 12 tribes, but a very unique list. One not found anywhere else in the Bible, but here. Now I would submit to you of the reasons that are put forth for this list of tribes that the omissions and the additions here are likely directly related to idolatry, to idolatry. If you remember Dan, we won't have time to go there this evening and look at it. I commend it to your own study. Dan, the tribe of Dan, had fallen into idolatry, severe idolatry, grievous idolatry in Judges chapter 18. If you were with us when we went through the book of Judges, Dan had tremendous problems after that point, uh, really difficult. But Dan fell into grievous idolatry in Judges 18. When the southern tribes and the northern tribes were uh, dislocated, as it were, when there was a division in the kingdom between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, that was after the rule of Solomon, under the rule of Rehoboam, his son. Ephraim, the north, or the, the nation of Israel to the north, the nation often called Judah to the south, a nation of Israel to the north often referred to by the name Ephraim. And Ephraim, critical in leading the northern tribes into idolatry. So both Ephraim and Dan, central, if you will, in the idolatry of those tribes or of the children of Israel. And so it appears as though because of idolatry, Ephraim and Dan left off the list of those of God's people who were sealed on their foreheads. It's fascinating, isn't it? And God does not forget their idolatry as it were. So it would appear then that Levi and Joseph were added to their place to maintain a complete number of tribes, to keep the number at 12. The number 12, again, is symbolic of this completion. What is that communicating? Remember here, as we think about what this is communicating, again, the number 12 signifies completion and God intending to have his complete number adds back to the list, Joseph and Levi. What is that signifying to us? God leaves nothing undone. God leaves no detail uncovered. God leaves no detail unaccomplished or unaccounted for. God is going to accomplish all of his decreed ends and every single one of those who ha- whom God has determined to call to himself to call, justify, and glorify, every one of them will be raised up at the last day, not one of them lost. God uh, will see to it. God seals a complete and perfect number of people. No idolaters, no idolaters. And by sealing them, he preserves them in the faith through tribulation. It's an evidence, if you will, that uh, God takes care of his own. If you remember in... um, John chapter 6, when the Lord Jesus Christ says uh, a couple of times there that those whom the Father has given to him, he will raise up at the last day, and not one of those that the Father has given to him will be lost except who? That son of perdition, that son of perdition, right? The Lord knows who are his, and he'll see to it that every single one of them, even the son of perdition, goes to his appointed end. God takes care of it. All right. Now, the way, the way that this list is presented is also very interesting. It's similar to the arrangement of Israel's men of war uh, in the Old Testament, in particular, Numbers chapter 1. Turn there with me to Numbers chapter 1. We'll look at this quickly. 
the way this list is presented, very interesting as well. This is a battalion list, if you will. A list of the armies of Israel. Numbers chapter 1, look at uh, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tabernacle of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, think about where we are right now. The Israelites have come out of Egypt. They are in the wilderness. They're in their wilderness wandering, as it were, and they are headed for the promised land. And they're going to have to march through the wilderness and then take the promised land that God is going to give them. They're going to have to take it by force. So in the wilderness then, God arranges them for war, arranges them for battle, as it were. Verse 2, take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel by their families, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male individually, from 20 years old and above, all who are able to go to war in Israel. That's the issue. Now, when we get to Revelation 14, we're going to see a further description of these 144,000. They are male virgin Jews. Male speaking here, I think, of those who are prepared for war. Um, Again, virgin Jews speaking of their moral purity. We're going to see that when we get to Revelation 14. But here, it is. uh, this is a battalion list. They're going to separate Israel according to those men of war by their tribes. uh, Chapter 2, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard. Beside the emblems of his father's house, they shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting on the east side toward the rising of the sun. Those of the standard of the forces with Judah shall camp according to their armies. Nashon, the son of Amminadab, shall be the leader of the children of Judah. And his army was numbered at 74,600. And then the rest of the camp, right? We have the camp allotments and those men of war ready for battle, prepared for battle, uh, lined up as it were, camped in their battalions, uh, prepared to face the difficulty of their wilderness wandering and face the difficulty of taking the promised land. This list in Numbers 1 commanded after the Israelites have begun wandering in the wilderness, the Israelites are on their way to the promised land to take possession of it, It's in preparation for the difficulty that they will face, and they number and arrange their men of war. In Revelation chapter 7 now, think with me, God has sealed his servants who are pictured or signified in their wilderness wandering in the war battalions of Israel. That's how he has pictured them. We're going to see as we work through chapter 7 that those sealed on their foreheads, they are the people of God. And here they're pictured or signified, as it were, in the wilderness prepared for battle, the war battalions of Israel. It is a perfect number, a complete number, not one is lost. They march through the wilderness on their way to the promised land, God preserving them all along the way through their tribulation until God pours out his judgments upon those who harass them. And Jesus Christ comes back to conquer and to establish his kingdom. Well, you see the connections, don't you? We see the parallels between Israel, again, Old Testament Israel, a type of the church who is not a replacement of Israel, but a fulfillment of Israel. I want to make that clear in a moment as well. A type of the church prepared for battle. The church herself goes through great tribulation, embattled as it were in the wilderness as she marches through the church age, as a war battalion, as it were, uh, to the promised land where the Lord comes back, executes judgment, and takes her home. You see, the connections here, I think, are very important. If you've turned to Christ in faith, you need to be encouraged by this picture. (laughs) We should be encouraged by this picture. The Lord has sealed you. He has placed his own name on your forehead, as it were, given you of his own spirit, You are armed to the teeth with spirit-wrought strength and power to preserve, to persevere through your wilderness march. Marching in the battalion of the redeemed, who, when Jesus Christ comes back, by the way, uh, is seen to be with him on white horses as he takes judgment out upon the wicked, 
his victory becomes their victory as well. A perfect and complete host of those that God is leading through the wilderness and on their way to the promised land. If you trust in Christ, you are in the 144,000. Do you see? You are numbered among their ranks under marching orders of your warrior king to endure through difficulty to the end. Make sense? The connection there, I think, is really important. Now, notice, these 144,000 are those who are arrayed to march through the tribulation. Look at chapter 7 and look at verse 14. Revelation 7, verse 14. In describing those now who are in heaven from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, he describes them, 714, as uh, the ones who have come out of the great tribulation. Now, why, look there, why is it that they make it through the great tribulation? It's because God has sealed them. Do you see how that connects these two groups then? Why do they make it through the great tribulation? Because God has sealed them. Who did he seal? He sealed the 144,000. We see that connection between the two groups. Just as John heard about the lion in chapter 5, verse 5, and then turned to see the lamb in chapter 5, verse 6, both signifying a different perspective of the same Son of God, so also then John heard the number of 144,000 Jews in chapter 7, verse 4, and then he turned to see this innumerable multitude in chapter 7, verse 9. Just as Jesus is both lion and lamb, so the 144,000 are representative of the people of God in their entirety, a complete number, first in her time of tribulation upon the earth, then in her time of rest around the throne. And we see that typological relationship between those two groups throughout the Bible, in particular the New Testament. Let me give you a couple of uh, examples of that quickly. Um, we've gone through this text together. Look at Romans chapter 2. And again, this is uh, something important to remind us of because, brothers and sisters, this is our identity. We are the people of God. The people of God have always been one people. Who are those people? Those blood-bought by the, the Christ, the Son of God, the one who gave himself for us, right? Those people are the people of God. Romans chapter 2, verse 28. The true people of God are not those who merely manifest conformity with some external ritual like circumcision. The true people of God are all those who manifest an inward conformity to Christ, a heart conformity with those spirit-wrought fruits produced through a circumcision of the heart. Not external ritual, but an inward reality. Verse 28, Paul is going to make that very point. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Now think about what Paul just said. He's not a Jew who is a Jew outwardly. <laughs> uh, that is earthquake theology to any Jew listening to this in the first century. What in the world are you saying, Paul, right? That if you're a Jew because you, you believe that you physically descend from Abraham, you got another thing coming. Listen to what he says, verse 29. But rather, he is a Jew. The one who is truly a Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly, and circumcision is not that in the flesh, but circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. What is the sign that you are a true descendant of Abraham? What is the sign that you are a true Jew? In other words, what is the sign that you are among the people of God? What is the sign that you are among the 144,000 faithful? What is that sign? A true child of Abraham is that one marked by a genuine and spiritual circumcision that takes place in the heart and that which manifests itself in two ways according to our text. One, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith alone in Christ alone. And two, evangelical obedience that accords with faith. Obedience that is the fruit of a genuine, living, healthy, thriving faith in Jesus Christ. The faith and obedience that are the fruits of a circumcised heart. Who are the people of God? Those who have been given a circumcised heart. Those who have been born again, united to Jesus Christ through faith. From Adam to Noah, 
to Abraham and the patriarchs, from Moses and David to the 12 apostles, to all those, the 12 not including Jesus, Judas, <laughs> to all those who would believe upon Jesus Christ through their word, that's the Lord's Prayer in John 17, God in grace has worked upon the hearts of his people to bring them to faith in Jesus Christ. We Gentiles, it's in that way, brothers and sisters, that we Gentiles have been grafted into that glorious tree that began with ethnic Israel and Gentiles back in the Old Testament too, like Rahab, like Caleb the Kenite, right? And through the faith of Abraham, that the fruit of that circumcision of the heart uh, makes us uh, the true people of God, a member of that assembly. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. It's a quick survey here. Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. Sorry, verse 5. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham, in the same way that Abraham believed God and it was credited to or accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that it's accounted to you in the same way, right? Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. What about all of those Jews in the Old Testament who did not mix their hearing of the gospel with faith? Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 4, right? That gospel preached to them, profited them nothing because they did not hear and respond with faith. They're not true Jews. What about Korah and all of those of his ilk who went alive into the pit? What about that entire first generation emancipation uh, generation that came out of Egypt that died in their wilderness, in the wilderness? They're, they're corpses strewn in the desert. God swore in his wrath they would not enter his rest. What happened? They perished. They were not among the people of God. Why? Because they did not share the faith of Abraham. Who are the true Jews? Who are the true people of God? Those who share the faith of Abraham. It's the point that Paul is making here. Very important. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Drop down to verse 28. Chapter 3, verse 26. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You've been united to Jesus Christ. As many of you as were baptized into Christ, all of us who, were, who have been brought into union with Jesus Christ through faith are children of God. We are those who are Christ's body. So then, if we're all members of Christ's body, by that union, verse 28, then there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in union with Jesus Christ. And if you're Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Amazing. What Paul is essentially saying is that by virtue of the new covenant, we can see, we can see that it is not redemptively correct to think of categories, spiritually, to think of categories like Jew and Gentile. The physical distinctions remain. Someone may be Jewish, someone may be, I'm, you're Gentile, right? The distinctions may remain, there's a distinction between male and female. It's not that that distinction goes away and now you can have women preachers. It's not, it's not what Paul is saying. The distinction remains, but redemptively, redemptively, it's not correct to think any longer in terms of ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles. The physical distinction's obviously still there. Redemptively, Redemptively, spiritually, we are all one in union with Jesus Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Keep going to the right. And the Lord tells us as much. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, now remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, you uncircumcised Gentiles, as you were called by the Jews, that at the time, at that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
In other, in other words, ethnic Jews who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and ethnic Gentiles who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ have both been brought near. Do you see? For he himself, verse 14, he himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace who has made both one. One people of God ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. Who are the people of God? The Jews or the church? (laughs) They're the same thing those who are in Jesus Christ through faith. Jews who are in Jesus Christ through faith and Gentiles who are in Jesus Christ through faith are one together in the body of Jesus Christ, in the body of Christ. They're the church. Those circumcised in heart are the Israel of God. The word used uh, for church in the New Testament is the same word used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, same word used of the assembly of Israel in the Old Testament. They are called the church. On earth, in her warfare, arrayed for battle, minus all the idolaters, but minus no one else. God preserves his own. It's not that the church replaces Israel. The church has always been Israel from the beginning until now. Do you see? Ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles, by faith in Jesus Christ, those are the people of God. Remember, Lord Jesus Christ himself has just described the Jews in his letter to the church at Smyrna in the first of seven cycles. He says, I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. When the Lord wrote that letter, who are the true Jews? Those in Smyrna who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Who are those among the synagogue of Satan? Those ethnic Jews who had not trusted in Jesus Christ. He calls them a synagogue of Satan, right? Those who have a circumcised heart are the people of God. Smyrna, as it were, represented in the 144,000. Do you see? That's the picture that's being given to us. Type and anti-type. Type and its fulfillment. The picture signifies something. It points to something. It points to a number which no man can number from every tribe, people, tongue, and nation worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ before the throne, singing praises to the Lamb with palm branches in their hand. The the ones whom God has redeemed to himself through the person and work of the Son. For those, there will be no more pain, no more crying, no more sorrow, no more death. Former things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. Those are the ones who will inhabit the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. Do you see? God is sovereign over everything. God is sovereign over the judgments that are poured out upon the earth, over harmful forces that appear operative in this world. And oftentimes it appears as though uh, that the wicked are prospering. Satan is not winning. God is in complete control. All is happening according to his will for the purpose of accomplishing all of his desired aims. He is working all things together, brothers and sisters, for our good. Not only that, but God knows how to deliver his own. Jude, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to him who is able to make you stand, and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty and dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this uh, tremendous picture of the church and how you display her here in the text of scripture and what we can learn, Lord, from the ways in which she is displayed here. And we praise you and thank you that not according to our own works, but exclusively and entirely according to the work of your own son, our Lord Jesus Christ, we are blessed to be a part of that number through faith in Jesus Christ, having a circumcised heart and dwelt by your spirit, united to him, our Lord, 
We thank you, Lord, for these glorious promises and the implications of them, Lord, as we await your return. Uh, Help us, Lord, to consider ourselves as that warrior battalion marches through her wilderness trial, her wilderness tribulation, her wilderness testing under the authority and under the leadership of our conquering warrior king. Help us, Lord, to um, consider our life uh, in this age, as it were, empowered by your spirit, preserved by your fatherly hand. Help us to consider uh, our service here, uh, Lord, to you as uh, uncompromising, as um, in strength and in maturity. Lord, help help us to to see uh, our lives uh, as not tossed to and fro by winds of chance, so to speak, but entirely within the scope of your sovereign hand, your preserving hand, your sovereign will, all of your decrees being executed, being brought to their full and final consummation. Uh, Help us to, Lord, persevere as you preserve us. Help us to march forward in strength as your people, doing that which you've called us to do, uh, worshiping, worshiping you as we ought to be worshiping you, putting ourselves under the preaching of your word, under your authority as it were, and, Lord, being a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ as a light that shines in a dark place. Help us to have his testimony on our lips in this wicked and perverse generation. May he be glorified. May you be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.